Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I want to welcome you to another awesome episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I had the opportunity to speak with Adam Hamilton. Adam is the founding pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City. Now, the church was started in 1990, but it has grown to be the largest United Methodist Church in the denomination with an average weekend worship attendance of over 10,000 people. So on this week's episode, Adam shares the unique and intentional decision that he made when planting this church, which really had a significant impact on the church's development. Uh, We also get into something very fascinating, and that is why Adam gave his church leadership permission to fire him. And Adam also shares some helpful leadership lessons that he learned as he traveled through Egypt studying the life of Moses. So I know you're going to love today's conversation with Adam, so I invite you to listen in. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on our Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Jason, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to share with uh, our church leaders. And I just have a, a quick question. You pastor the largest United Methodist Church, the Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. Now, honestly, Adam, whenever I was kind of looking in, and this was some time ago, but I was looking at at the Church of the Resurrection, and I guess I just had always imagined that it was one of the large established United Methodist churches with a with a long history over the years, and and uh, but I learned that really this is a church that you planted in 1990, right? Yeah, that's right. We started, uh, my wife and I and our two children, they were two weeks old and three years old when we started, and Levon and I were 25 and 26, and we had this dream of starting a church for thinking people who were non-religious and nominally religious, trying to find folks who were not going to church anywhere, trying to, to really look at folks. The community that we're located in is a pretty highly educated community, and we thought, okay, there's a whole lot of people here who think, um, I don't really need God and I don't need church, and maybe I'm too smart for that. And we wanted to be able to speak to their intellect and then their heart and then to see their lives changed and to send them out in the world to live their faith and to, um, to be witnesses for Christ and to transform our community so it looks more like the kingdom of God. That's awesome. Now, now what would you say um, are some of those factors that helped you go from a church that didn't exist, literally, I mean, you planted this church, to um, the largest United Methodist Church? Well, I think uh, a couple things. First of all, uh, we were in a community that was kind of the right place at the right time. Now, there were 30 other churches that started out there in our same community at about the same time within about five years of that, and most of them didn't do what this church has done. But we were in, you know, we were in a place where there was a lot of growth that was happening. We were really clear about our mission, so we had a really clear purpose that you know, we were targeting non-religious and nominally religious people. We were looking for thinking people. We were going to speak to their intellect and then to their heart. We, you know, we were doing something a little different than other churches were, so there were, at the time, uh, Willow Creek was kind of the model for churches, and I really hadn't been to Willow Creek. I didn't know much about it. I'd, I'd actually never been to a church larger than about 300 people a Sunday in worship, but I had this idea that it, you know, a lot of those non-religious people were mainline Christians who had dropped out of church in high school or college or whatever, and I thought if we can offer worship that looks familiar you know, from their past uh, and at the same time is is relevant and is passionate and we explain certain things to them like why are we doing this that might be what separates us from many of the other churches that look kind of similar they were all doing similar styles of worship and so 
we came in and, and it was against all the rules in 1990. You weren't supposed this wasn't supposed to work, but we came in and we had a small choir. You know, we had uh, we had a little bit of liturgy in the worship services. We were you know we were clearly United Methodist, and we explained what this looked like. And and it was interesting. It was sort of when you think about ancient modern worship and you know the that terminology today. Well, we were doing that back in 1990, and people would come in and they were like, "I recognize this." You know, we used to say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday when you know when I was growing up. Or this this sounds familiar or looks familiar. And at the same time, it was aimed, you know, clearly targeted at people who weren't very active in church and and trying to get them plugged in. So that was one of the things, is our clear sense of purpose. We also were clearly focused on serving the community. And so 25%, the first 25% of every dollar that came in the offering plate, and, you know, at that time, that was our first year's budget was like $50,000, but was going to go towards serving the poor, ministering to people in the community, those kind of things. We did a lot of direct mailing to the community and uh, and encouraged our people every Sunday to invite their friends. I planned sermon series at certain times of the year that were focused on, you know, at, on answering the kind of questions non-religious people were asking. And so every year in January, right after Christmas Eve, we would you know plan a sermon series like that, and right after Easter as well. And we really focused on trying to, you know, the times when the culture is still thinking about going to church, the non-church culture is thinking about going to church or Christmas and Easter. So we really capitalized on those in our mailings and our advertisements and all that. And our attendance would usually triple, and then we would, you know, we would hopefully do such a great job and do excellent follow-up that they would come back. And and lastly, I would say we had um, we tried to do really good follow-up with first-time visitors. So we delivered, you know, I personally would take a coffee mug to every first-time visitor's home on Sunday afternoon after they visited Sunday morning, until we got to the point where I couldn't keep up with that anymore, and I started training lay people to do it. You know, I did it up to about 10 or 15 first-time visitors a weekend, and then we started training lay people. After the third visit, I would get to their homes, and I would, you know, go by and, and spend an hour with them, just listening to their story and sharing with them my story and what the church was about and and uh, and then praying with them. And all of those things were really pivotal in the early years in, uh, in terms of, you know, seeing the growth happen and, and people coming. And, and then, it, it you know, at some point, you got so many people who were new, and they're inviting their new friends. And so it's just been... And I would say beyond that, I would, you know, the Holy Spirit has done something that was much bigger than any of us ever anticipated. Right. Wow. So was the growth um, relatively consistent from the, from the time you planted? Yeah. You know, in the beginning, the early years, we grew by about 50% a year for the first five years, probably. And um, that's not a sustain, at least I don't, maybe it is sustainable in some churches, but, you know, I couldn't figure out how to sustain that over the long haul. So we, we grew, you know, the first year... We began with about 90 people a Sunday in worship the first month, and then we were at 150 the next year, and then 275 the next year, and then 500, and then, you know, we grew from there. But then we, I would say, once we hit about uh, probably 5,000 a Sunday in worship, you know, it was down to about 25% uh, growth in worship. We got to between six and 7,000, and we, and we kind of, I don't know if we stalled, but we didn't, you know, we didn't see quite the same percentages of growth happening. Then we started new new campuses, so we began a campus uh, in about 20 minutes uh, west of us, and then we began a campus in downtown Kansas City a couple years later, and then in, in the eastern suburbs. And at that point, our cam- our growth at the uh, Leewood campus, the central campus, pretty much stalled. It, actually, we, we started going down a little bit there, but we all of our growth was happening at the campuses. And then we started online, and that affected us a bit too. So we had, um, you know, today we have somewhere between three and well, around 3,000 people a weekend in worship online, and about two-thirds of those are our resurrection members who are, for whatever reason, we call it jammy church. They're staying and going to jammy church. And, <laughs> and so, uh, so you know, that's, 
that's been a bit of a challenge. But, you know, we've continued to grow when you add all of those up, but the Leewood campus kind of stalled out for a while. Uh, recently, we opened our permanent sanctuary, and the growth there has, has jumped up, uh, you know, pretty significantly in the last two months since we opened. But, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see. It's been uh, right now on an average weekend at the Leewood campus. Well, now it's summertime, but before that we were running close to 8,000 uh, in attendance, not counting children's Sunday school. That's just that's just physical worship attendance. And then we had another probably uh, 2,000 at our campuses, and then another two to 3,000, well, usually 3,000 online. That's what our attendance looks like today. Wow. When did you start doing the the multiple campuses? That's 10 years ago, and that campus runs about 1,000 a weekend in worship. And uh, we have a campus in downtown Kansas City that's just uh, breaking ground on the first new church building in downtown Kansas City in 85 years. Wow. We're excited about that. We bought a city block downtown, and, and um, they're running close to 1,000 a weekend in worship. And then we have a smaller campus that was an existing church that was struggling and, and uh, looking like it was going to die, and they asked if they could become a campus. And they voted to close and then reopened under new leadership, you know, two months later, and they became Church of the Resurrection Blue Springs. And that church started with about 50, and today they're about 350 a Sunday. And that actually, I'm really excited about all of them. That one I'm really excited about because I feel like there's lots of other churches that are struggling at 50 a Sunday. Right. And this might be a model for helping those churches have a future. That's excellent. Um, as, you're, as you're sharing that story, I couldn't help but think that going from, you know, just your family and launching a church and, you know, having about 90 on a Sunday um, and now where you are today, over these, it hasn't even been 30 years now, you know, it's right, 27 right? right, 27 yeah. years. So over that span of time, how did you, as a leader, as a lead pastor, how did you keep up with just the leadership challenge of, you know, leading a church that was, you know, growing so dramatically? Well, it was a constant uh, process of handing, of delegating, of handing over things that I really enjoyed doing to other people and trying to figure out what are the things that only I can do. What are the things that, you know, where if I don't do this, the church is really going to suffer, whereas if I don't do that, I'm going to miss out on something I really enjoy, but somebody else can do that. And, and the truth is, when you first start, and, you know, it's, you're doing everything, of course, everybody would love for you to be the one visiting them in the hospital. Everybody would love for you to be, and you're probably the most effective person to deliver coffee mugs to first-time visitors because the people saw you up on the chancel, you know, speaking and praying, and they heard you preach. And so when you show up, it's different than if somebody shows up they didn't see. Right. But, but at the same time, the nominal value of you doing those things uh, relative to somebody else doing them is not as high as the nominal value of you, you know, whether it's making sure that your preaching is effective or doing the higher-level leadership functions or, you know, those kind of things. And so... I found I was constantly peeling off things that I, that I enjoyed doing and handing them off to other people and then trying to focus on what are the things that I need to do. And the truth is, along those 27 years, there are times I felt like I was failing. There are moments where, you know, where I feel like I would get burned out or I would hit a wall and I would think, okay, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I I'm clearly not getting this right right now. And, uh, and that happens, you know, with some, you know, every few years I'm going to find I'm in a place where like, okay, Right now, I, I can't figure out what i got to do to change this. And, uh, and you know, fortunately, I have a great staff team around me who play a key role, and our, our uh, lay leaders are excellent, too. But, yeah, it's, it's a different animal. I, you know, I tell people that every year to every two years, we become, you know, we become the next size larger church. And so you're constantly needing to read and study and learn. And I had to, you know, I had to visit with people who were at larger churches 
than ours to figure out, okay, how do you do this now? Or what does that look like? Or, you know, what does your time look like? And, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a, a real learning curve. And sometimes I've got it right and sometimes I haven't. Wow. Now, you've been at this, this same church that you planted for 27 years. That's a, that's a long time. Oftentimes pastors find themselves, you know, moving from one church to another. Um, can you talk a little bit about your longevity there? Yeah. So, you know, I think part of the longevity, uh, first of all, I, I had, uh, early on, I had a, one of my lay leaders say, you know, are you prepared for the fact that the day may come where this church grows beyond your leadership abilities and capabilities? And I said, absolutely. This church doesn't exist to give me a job, and this, this church is more important to me and its mission than me working here. And so my hope would be, and I told our, our personnel committee, I said, if, if the day comes where I'm no longer the best person to be the senior pastor, I need you to tell me that, because I may not see it. I'm, I'm, you know, I won't be able to notice that, and I care so much about this mission that I'm going to ask you to please, I'm going to beg you to have the courage to fire me. I need you to be, to know that the mission matters more than the senior pastor, but I'm going to ask you to give me a year, you know, to try right. to fix whatever I'm doing wrong before <laughs> you fire me. But, uh, but I mean it, you know, I can't convey more, you know, any more dramatically than this, that I want you to have the courage to do what needs to happen. But I told them, I, I want to do everything I can to try to be the senior pastor this church needs at its next journey or its next venture or, you know, where it's going next. Um, one of the things that was important for me was trying to take care of my family and figure out how to, because I, I tend to be the workaholic, put, put in too many hours kind of thing. And so I had to try to, my wife would regularly be the one who would stop me and say, okay, this is not working anymore. Uh, you know, you're, I, I'm not seeing you enough. The kids aren't seeing you enough. And so paying attention to her, trying to make sure I'm taking time with the kids uh, was important. And then um, the church, our church has a sabbatical policy where every sixth or seventh year, after six years, so in your seventh year, <clears throat> you can request off uh, up to three months. Uh, you're compensated during that time, but you've got to put a plan together as to what you're going to do to strengthen your family, your spiritual life, and what you're going to gain that's going to help the church. And that's been, I've, I've taken three of those. And during those 27 years, and that's been really important as well. Excellent, excellent. That's interesting as you talk about some of those leadership lessons and and how you had to grow in leadership um, naturally. You know, what I mean, as as things around you were growing, you too were stretched. You you recently right. released a book on the life of Moses, Moses in the footsteps of the reluctant prophet by Abingdon Press. And can you talk to us a little bit about those leadership lessons? that um, you found as you were studying the life of Moses? Absolutely. And I might say a word first about just the, the book itself. The, one of the callings that I felt is to take people to the, um, to the lands of the Bible, people who maybe otherwise wouldn't go to the Holy Land or they wouldn't maybe go to, um, uh, you know, to Egypt or these other places, to take them there and to help them see the biblical story in the light of the land. And any of your listeners who've been to the Holy Land know how it just opens up the Bible to you. It's a, you know, they call it the fifth gospel, just a way of seeing things differently. And so I've been doing this. I've taken, I've written books. I take a video team with me, and we record small group videos in each of these places. So I've been to the Holy Land for three of these. I've been across Turkey, Greece, and Italy to focus on Paul. For Methodist, I went to England, and I focused on John Wesley and the founding of the Methodist movement. And then one of my dreams was to get to Egypt. And I had to postpone it several years because the situation was just too dangerous to, to go over, or at least the State Department felt it was, and the places that I wanted to go. And so we finally were able to go uh, last year. And uh, then I preach a sermon series using the video footage. Then I prepare a book and a small group study on it. 
So the book just came out a couple weeks ago, and it was really, it's got pictures and maps and kind of helps people, in, you know, it includes some of the, you know, critical biblical scholarship, but it, it really focuses on what does this story mean for our lives today. And one of the chapters in there is on the leadership lessons from Moses, and so I thought I might just share a few of those with you and with your listeners. Um, and the, the chapter uh, speaks about the season when Moses is in the wilderness. And, you know, these are lessons we've all thought of before, but I'll just mention a few of them. The first one that I focused on was when um, Moses is there at Mount Sinai, and the Israelites are coming to him. You know, he's going up to the mountain and coming down with the directives from God, and, you know, kind of like we pastors sometimes think we're doing when we come to preach on Sundays. And, and, uh, and then the people are coming to him, and they want advice. They want to talk to him. They, you know, they need to talk about their problems or solve their conflicts. And so you may remember his uh, father-in-law, Jethro, comes over, and he watches as Moses is meeting with, you know, meeting with people from morning till night, and uh, finally Jethro says, uh, look, what you're doing isn't good. You're going to totally wear yourself out, both you and the people who are with you. The work is too difficult for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me, and I'll give you some advice. And I love this because Jethro becomes the first management consultant in human history, <laughs> at least that I know of. <laughs> right. And he gives the advice that every great management consultant has given to every leader, and that is you've got to delegate. And he says, you know, you've got to find these capable people, and he lays out the criteria for them, and he says, now they're going to take care of all the lesser problems, but the more serious problems are going to bring to you, and you're going to be happier, and they're going to be happier, and that's exactly what happens. And that's the beginning of the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the ruling council, is you've got, you know, 70 people that he selects uh, as elders to help, you know, help lead the way. And, and I think about that, and, and that, you know, as we were talking just a moment ago, was pivotal in Church of the Resurrection's growth is the ability to give away leadership and to no longer be in control of everything. And I remember years ago I was visiting with uh, John Ed Matheson, who was leading one of our largest Methodist churches at the time, and we were running at Resurrection about 1,500 a Sunday. And I was feeling like I was losing my mind. Like, you know, we, I would pull in the parking lot of the church, and, I, and there'd be hundreds of cars there, and I would have no idea what, it was, you know, what they were all there for. I felt like I couldn't keep up with everything, and I said to John Ed, who I dedicated this book to, the Moses book to, I said, John Ed, I feel like, you know, I, I'm losing control. I feel like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not keeping up with everything. I feel like I'm failing. And he says, listen, if, uh, if in a church your size, you know everything that's going on, you don't have enough going on. Mm. And you've got to decide, is this church your church or is it God's church? And if it's your church, you just keep your arms around it, keep it the size that you can be in charge of everything. But if it's God's church, you've got to let it go and let God raise up people to be you know, leaders in the church. That's good. And that fundamentally changed the direction of resurrection. I, you know, I don't know where we would be today if it hadn't been for that. And that's what happened with Moses and the Israelites. The second thing I, I focus on in this chapter is what happened as the Israelites began grumbling against Moses. Mm-hmm. So we've all, you know, we all know what this is like to have people grumbling against us. And, you know, you can't be in leadership without people grumbling. But there are 10 times um, that are, you know, and it's, it's really interesting how clearly these are laid out in uh, Exodus and Numbers, ten times, where the children of Israel begin to grumble against Moses. They don't like the food. There's not enough water. They wish that, the, you know, at one point they, uh, they're scared of the, uh, you know, of the giants that are living in the promised land, and, and they want to elect a new leader. They're going to stone Moses, and they're going to go back to Egypt. And, uh, and so you look at this story, and you think, man, how often does that happen for us as leaders? And, and you know, as I began to think about that, I thought, and you know, you remember Moses goes out in the wilderness and, and he, here's his prayer, uh, Lord, kill me now. I am sick of these people. I can't do it anymore. It's too much of a burden. Why have you treated me so badly to put me in charge of a group like this? 
And there have been so many times that the church, the thing that is most discouraging for most of us pastors in particular, because we're people people, you know, we like, right. we like people to like us, you know, there's, uh, and so when somebody doesn't like you and they communicate anonymously or directly or behind your back or whatever else, we get defensive, uh, we get, uh, you know, we get our feelings hurt, uh, we get frustrated, we feel like thrown in the towel, and, and uh, one of the things I've found so I'm 52. When I was 30, this stuff just ate in my lunch. You know, and I'd feel like if I got an email, well, you know, 35, if I got an email, uh, I felt like I had to spend two hours responding to every one of those emails and being, you know, making my case and showing while I was right. And, and today at 52, I'm like, oh, well, thanks for sharing your thoughts with me. Appreciate it. Have a good day. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and there are times where I just realize I, I can't make you happy, um, but, you know, I love you anyway. And, uh, and there are other times where I realize, you know what, you're right. I, I messed up there, and I, uh, I'm really sorry about that. I'll, I'll do a better job next time. And so uh, learning how to deal with that criticism and the fact that I went, I went to, in the book, I think I mentioned this, uh, I went to look to see what, what is the favorability ratings of presidents across the last, you know, 100 years. And, you know, the most, uh, the president who across his entire presidency had the highest approval rating was John Kennedy with 70%. Eisenhower had 65%, Reagan had 55% over the course of his two terms. And uh, what that means is that, you know, a lot of people, when I ask them who's the most popular president who, who had the highest approval ratings, most of them think it's Reagan. Well, it wasn't Reagan, but he was not too far from the top. But even with Reagan, 45% of Americans disapproved of the job he was doing. And even with John F. Kennedy, 30% of Americans disapproved of the job that he was doing. So, so when we think we need to have 100% approval over the job we're doing, we're probably not doing a good job if everybody agrees with everything that we're doing. And so, you know, for Moses, the key thing was he had to get, you know, get back on the horse and go riding again. He had to keep going. And the, and the leaders who change the world are the people who refuse to give up. They keep going. They listen. They learn. Uh, they're humble. They try to not get overwhelmed by the opposition, but they keep going. And what I find is many pastors, when they start getting criticized and you know these kind of things they they give up too quickly and i remember some years ago we had a period where we lost quite a few members over a sermon that i had preached and you know i did some real soul searching did i preach the wrong thing did i do the wrong thing and uh and there came a point i told my wife i said i can't do this anymore i i just can't do this for another 25 years is it okay if we take another job and you know if because at the time i was getting calls to go to do other things and and she's like, well, but here's the question I want to ask you. Is God calling you to do something else, or are you running away? Oh, yeah. And I realized I was running away because it just hurt too much. And, I, and so I just kept putting my pants on another day and kept praying and kept moving forward. And, you know, it's funny. That was about, uh, gosh, I don't know, 20 years, not quite 20 years ago, probably 18 years ago, 17 years ago. All of the best experiences in my ministry at Resurrection have happened since then. Wow. And I would have missed all those had I quit right. at the time. You know, and so, and then the last thing that uh, in this chapter, well, there's several other things, but in this chapter, the last thing I'll mention to you is uh, what happened when the Israelites, you know, they're, so they're two years out of Egypt, and they've gone almost two years out of Egypt, and they, they're right on the edge of the Promised Land, so they're just a few miles from the Promised Land, and they send the spies into the land, and the spies go into the land, and they come back with the report that it is a land flowing with milk and honey, but the people look like giants to us, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes, and all of a sudden the people are terrified. And, and part of what this reminds me of, I, I talked about this as being paralyzed by fear just a few miles from the promised land. And this is what happens to many of us, is we get scared, and in our fear, 
we get paralyzed and we don't act. And you know, here they were two years in and they could have gone right into the promised land and God was with them and God had called them to go there, but they had forgotten that. And so paralyzed by their fear, they end up spending the next 38 years camped out just a few miles from the promised land. And you think about that, you know, the 40 years, they weren't wandering all around the wilderness during that time. They were camped at Kadesh Barnea, just a few miles from the promised land because they were too afraid. And, and you know, I, I love how in your rearview mirror it says objects, you know, are closer than they appear. But when it comes to our fear, objects appear bigger than they really are. Mm. And so the obstacles, the objects, uh, you know, that, that they, they look like giants to us. And, uh, and somewhere along the way, we've got to remember, if God has called us, what God can do, and be willing to take risks. And sometimes you're going to fail, but most of the time you're going to succeed. And uh, I, I think back to a leadership lesson I share with folks all the time that I learned years ago from Franklin Time Management course. I don't remember anything else about the course, but I remember this. They said the successful leaders are willing to do the things an unsuccessful leader is not willing to do. And it's just so simple, but it's, it really has to do with courage, and it has to do with willing, the willingness to take risks and to not give in to your fears. We're all going to be afraid. I feel fear. In fact, I'm writing a book right now on fear. I feel fear sometimes. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. I know I'm going to take the heat for it. But the people who make a difference and the leaders who prevail are the ones who are willing to take the risks and don't give in to their fears. That's good. When we look at the totality of Moses' life, and you know, the reality is he, he didn't get to step into the promised land in the end, what does that say to us as, as church leaders, as ministry leaders? Well, I think, you know, that's a great question. I, so I stood up on the top of Mount Nebo in Jordan and filmed the last segment of this small group study, and uh, the last chapter is on this very point. And uh, one thing I'd say is God allowed him to see the promised land, you know, on the, from the top of Mount Nebo, which had to have been a supernatural experience because you can only see bits and pieces of it, you know. So I think God, whether it was in his heart and his mind, God, God allowed him to see and get so close to it. And I think about Martin Luther King, who, who used that same picture of Moses climbing Mount uh, Nebo and seeing the promised land on the last sermon that he preached before he was shot to death. So in, uh, in Memphis, uh, when he preached that final sermon, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the other side. I've been to the, you know, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land. We will get there as a people, uh, King says. And I think the fact is we don't, you know, we won't, actually, I hope none of us ever fully arrive at the promised land here on this side of eternity, because that means, yeah, I mean, you, the vision's always got to be somehow bigger and beyond where you're at. And, uh, and so I think what we recognize is that everything that would happen in the future from Moses' time forward, was built on his shoulders. I mean, how many times in the, in the Gospels is Jesus either likened to Moses or he refers back to Moses or there's something that's, that is influenced by Moses? I think it's like 87 times in the Gospels. Right. And, uh, and even we as Christians, our faith is built on the shoulders of this man who ascended Mount Nebo, and he never made it into the Promised Land, but he had a vision for it, and he led the people right to the edge of the promised land. And I think that's what we do as leaders. We never are going to fully arrive with our people to the destination. We are constantly leading them and cajoling them and helping them and mentoring them and pushing them towards that, that promised land. And for us, the promised land, for Moses, it was, I think it was always more than just a piece of real estate. It was a, it was a place where God's kingdom was lived out on earth as it is in heaven. And for us as Christians, the promised land is the kingdom of God. It's this vision that's bigger than we are, that we're pushing ourselves towards, we are trying to live into. 
We'll never fully live into it this side of eternity, but we're going to pray every day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we lead our people towards that vision of the promised land. And so I think it's okay if you don't make it. You know, In fact, you shouldn't ever. If your vision of the promised land is such that you actually finally made it, your vision of the promised land was too small. Wow, that's, that's good. What encouragement would you give um, to pastors who are you know, pastoring an, an average church? Um, you know, it's not, it's not a massive church, hasn't seen tons of growth, and they're just faithfully, you know, Sunday after Sunday, sharing the word week after week, ministering to their people. What encouragement would you give them? Yeah, well, I'd say in the day and time we're living in today, for many churches, it's not even just maintaining. It's today, you know, the culture that we live in, and even for church people, the culture is that it's probably declining. Uh, the average attendance, you know, that used to be, you know, people who were faithful worship attenders were there three Sundays a month. Today it's 1.75 Sundays a month. So even if you have the same number of people, your attendance is down. And, and it can be discouraging in the culture in which we live trying to figure out how do I, you know, how do I keep doing this and how do I, you know, continue to reach people and do the things God wants me to do. But so a couple things I'd say. First of all, we wake up every day and say, here I am, Lord. Send me on your mission. And then we pay attention to look to see where it is that God is working and how God needs to use us each day, and, and not to grow weary in that, in that process, but instead each morning just wake up and say, Lord, I'm yours, and help me to in, you know, make my life a prayer to you, as Keith Green sang ages ago, but allow my life to be, a, you know, to be a reflection of your love and grace. I think in terms of just some nuts and bolts things in an average church, we remember it's all about people. I mean, it's all about God, but then beyond that, ministry is all about people, and it's about relationships, and it's about caring for people. And so I find, you know, when I'm in the hospital, and I don't get to do this very often anymore, but I'm in the hospital, and I'm caring for somebody and, and loving them in Jesus' name, that brings me joy. When I have a chance to sit and visit with somebody and, you know, listen to their story and just by virtue of listening feel like I had a chance to minister to them, you know, that brings me joy, and I think it brings God joy. And so a lot of it is not these really big, dramatic things that we're going to do. It's focusing on those things. One of the things I would also say is focus on your preaching. And, you know, often our preaching gets the short shrift because we have all these, you know, crises that come up. So every week, you know, we've got, you know, somebody else is in the hospital on the day that I was supposed to be writing my sermon. And, and so we end up getting to Saturday, and Saturday we're, now is the worst time to try to write a sermon is Saturday night when you, you know, you feel like you're under the gun. And so, you know, what I'd say is make sure you're taking enough time to be reading to be studying and to have something that you feel you learned yourself and you felt like God was speaking to you that week in the sermon, you know, as you were preparing, that you can share with your people. And when you feel like you've got, uh, you know, you've got a, a good word from God to share and that speaks to people's lives and you prepared it well, you know, that also goes a long way. And when you're feeding the flock, it goes a long way in creating a healthy, vital congregation. So, yeah, I'd say those things and then constantly thinking about, you know, what's one thing God wants to use us uh, in this community to do or in the world to do in the coming year. So you've got some kind of vision of a place that you're leading people because I find people are drawn to vision. They want to they be a part of making a difference in the world, but their leaders have to help them to be able to do that. So figuring out a vision, sharing a message that's done well, and, you know, that you've really spent time reading and preparing so you've got something to offer, and remembering it's all about people and relationships. Those three things, I think, are pivotal in any size church in both keeping your own soul fed, but also in, um, in doing good ministry. Yeah, that's good. I love that because you're talking about uh, being fully present with your people in the here and now, but also that, that stretch into God's vision for what's yes. 
what's bigger. And uh, I, I think that balance is super helpful. Well, Adam, I certainly appreciate you once again taking the time to share with us some some great nuggets of leadership um, from your own life, your own journey, your own experience, and also from from Moses as well. We certainly appreciate. If someone wants to get in touch with you, connect with you, um, how can they do that? What website or yeah, Twitter? Or? Yeah, probably the. So uh, I'm at uh, at Rev Adam Hamilton at Rev Adam Hamilton on Twitter. On uh, Facebook, it's Pastor Adam Hamilton, and if they go to my p- Facebook page and follow it, it's an organizational page, they follow it, they can send direct messages to me there. I try to keep up with all of those. Uh, if they don't hear back from me, then have them send, <clears throat> you know, just send another one uh, a week later, because I sometimes will find groups of those messages that I haven't got to. Most of my email goes directly through my assistant, so she makes sure that everything gets responded to, but, <laughs> but in those social media areas, those are good ways to catch me, is uh, at Rev Adam Hamilton and uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton on Facebook. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, brother. Once again, uh, we appreciate you being with us. And thank you so much. God bless you. Listen, it's great to talk to you today, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders podcast. And if so, We'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.